make it make sense. For me, context is really important. Howard French has delivered a masterwork of history and context with his book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans in the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. I highly recommend this book. I mean, like, you should go out and get it right now. It covers 600 years of history, four continents, and the Caribbean, and many African kingdoms, and it's just loaded with information, and it pulls it all together to deliver and tell us how Africa, African resources, African labor, African resilience, and African rebellion are the essential, if previously un erased ingredients in shaping the West and the modern world. Well, so this is thorough history, but it's also so wonderfully written with, with story and passion, and it's very accessible, but it's not watered down, but it's accessible. Y you will like it. Mr. French is a professor of journalism at Columbia. He's worked as the bureau chief for the New York Times for the Caribbean, West and Central Africa, Japan, the Koreas, and China. This is a true heavyweight joining us here on this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Howard French, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Mark. We are going to discuss your excellent book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans in the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. I'm holding it up for the for the audience. And listen, I will say, go out and get this book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Independent booksellers, we like them best. Trust me, my family is keeping Amazon in surplus for years, so they, they'll be okay. But you want to get this book. Howard, before we start, I have two predictions for this book. One is there is a middle school age girl somewhere in Accra or maybe Cartagena or Baltimore or Bridgetown that 25 years from now will be inspired by this book and she will lead the 1471 project from Musa of Mali to Muddy of Mississippi. I, I know that this will be a classic and on the home, on the live on the shelves of some home libraries for sure. The other thing that I predict for this is that not, and I say this in all sobriety is, is that just in the climate that we're in is that, there will be state legislatures in Florida and Texas who will see this and, 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 and not like it too much. So that means you're doing a good job. Let me say that. Thank you. I think the spirit of the first comment is beautiful. Um, that's why a person like myself writes books is because I'm trying to fertilize the minds of, of, of people, not just in the present moment, but down the road. And, um, you know, I did an interview yesterday where a, a question came up that was a little unsuspected, unexpected, which said, you know, what do you recommend to people who uh, can follow in your footsteps? And I, you know, I don't really tend to think consciously about follow, having following my foot. I'm too active to think that way. I'm still following in other people's footsteps. But if 
people are reading this book and thinking about it in the way that you just suggested 25 years from now, that will, even if I'm not here to, to witness it, that will be a very great blessing. It's the ideas that are important, and I want them to, 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 to propagate and to enter into the discussion and into our legacy. Yeah, no, I, I listen, I mean that sincerely. It's a great book. And the thing that I liked about it is, is that it's completely thorough, rich bibliography, a lot of sources. It's covering a lot of information. And I mean this in the best way possible. It's accessible at the same time. It's like for me, if I were introducing someone to jazz, I'm a big jazz fan. I would say Cannonball Adderley because you're not going to get watered down jazz at all but you're still going to be able to tap your toes, snap your fingers. You're going to have that that beat so you can keep going. And that's what this book reminds me of is that it, or calls to mind for me is that it's got everything in there, but it's, it's approachable at the same time. So excellent job. I want to get into it with just um, my understanding of, you know, sort of what I was taught from grade school up until just yesterday about the making of the modern world or the West or, you know, what we have now. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue on behalf of Spain with the mission of finding a route to India to trade spices. He ends up in the Bahamas, discovers the Americas, and from there the Europeans through rugged individualism, Judeo-Christian work ethic, ingenuity, tame continents, and create the modern world. Your book, Born in Blackness, tells a different tale. It sure does. I mean, pretty much every piece of what you just said, it it comes at in the spirit of deconstruction or reconstruction or complexity or absolute rebuttal. Uh, And so I'll start with the rebuttal piece of that. The rebuttal piece of that is that the foundation myth of the modern age that we are almost all taught is, as you said, something that begins with Columbus or Columbus is very near the start or the center of that story, almost always. And as the story is told in our schools and in most of the history books even that we read as adults, Africa, if it is mentioned at all, is mentioned as an obstacle. Uh, It's an inert geopolitical space. There's nothing really of inherent interest about Africa or Africans. And the challenge that Africa poses to Europeans in that age is how to get around it. So we're trying to get around Africa, we meaning they, the Europeans back in that age, because they're obsessed with reaching Asia. Well, let me um, just start at the beginning, which is where my book starts, uh, of, of this, this whole narrative, to show why that's just not the case. That's not what the start of a modern age was really all about. It was about a discovery, a pursuit of discovery by Europeans and most especially by the Portuguese a maritime connection to the wealth of West Africa. Uh, And the story of the wealth of West Africa begins to take hold in the imaginations of the Europeans in the late Middle Ages, meaning in the 1400s, prior to the New World discovery of Columbus, because in the preceding century, the 14th century, there had been a pilgrimage by an African emperor whose name you mentioned earlier, Mansa Musa of Mali, who travels by camelback with an enormous cortege of court officials and, and, and various other retinue and slaves and all the rest, uh, 3,500 miles to Cairo and to Mecca. And Mansa Musa travels with 
18 tons of pure gold in his bags uh, and dispenses with this gold in acts of enormous patronage. It's unheard of. Nobody before or since has ever seen one person control so much wealth. And Mansa Musa is freely distributing it uh, all along the way and in especially lavish ways to important officials in the imperial court of the Mamluk dynasty, which controlled Egypt at the time. And this was a geopolitical ploy by Mansa Musa, we can get into if you wish uh, later on. But for the moment, just sort of getting back to the start of the modern age narrative, uh, this quantity of gold that Mansa Musa distributes in Cairo is so great that the price of gold is depressed for the next decade in the Mediterranean world. Word of Mansa Musa and of his wealth rapidly spreads beyond the Middle East into Europe, uh, and the Europeans are seized with this notion that there's extraordinary wealth in Africa, and the Portuguese become particularly obsessed with this for reasons that, that are um, unique to their history. Portugal at the time was an almost brand new dynasty. It had broken away from the other crowns of Iberia that came together later to form Spain, and Portugal was very weak and very poor. And the elements of, of the rest of Iberia that became Spain, especially Castile, wanted to reclaim Portugal. And so Portugal needed to come up with some kind of wealth in order to get on its feet, in order to defend itself, in order to survive. And the strategy that they set out upon in the early 1400s was, we're, so we're talking nearly a century before the discovery of quote-unquote the New World, was let's set out by sea, not to Asia, Let's try to find this wealth in Africa that we have heard about from Mansa Musa's great pilgrimage and which had come to be represented in a great variety of very impressively detailed maps of Africa and of the world in that era. And the most famous of these maps, the Catalan Atlas, appears on the, uh, it's beautiful, one of the most beautiful maps and one of the most important maps in the history of the world appears, an excerpt of it appears on the cover of my book and it shows Mansa Musa, the Malian ruler, sitting on a golden throne in the middle of, of the Sahel region of West Africa. And so the Portuguese set out on this unique quest. We got to find Mansa Musa. We got to find the source of this gold. And it takes them decades to succeed. They don't actually make it to Mansa Musa's capital, but they do navigate their way bit by bit further and further down the coast of West Africa, overcoming their own superstitions about the world being flat and about dragons going to burn them up at sea and about various other sort of prohibitive dangers. And in 1471, they arrive at a place called Elmina that is in present-day Ghana. And in Elmina, they discover to their surprise and delight uh, the uh, enormously abundant availability of gold. And so this is what changes European history. This is what changes African history. This is what changes world history to, in my view, in my argument, start the modern age. This is 1471, so it's two decades before Columbus makes it to the so-called New World. And interestingly, in cutting Africa out of this narrative, we have even cut out the fact that Columbus himself was in the employment of the Portuguese in this era to service their trade in gold with Ghana at that time. So Columbus himself, before going to the New World, was going back and forth to West Africa to help the Portuguese establish this trade in gold, which became so decisive in allowing Portugal to survive, and which also funded, it gave Portugal the wherewithal to fund its own great 
subsequent voyages of, di- of discovery, which eventually did arrive in Europe, I'm sorry, in Asia. But attention, the Portuguese were, had their hands so full in Africa. What they were doing in Africa was so enriching and so fulfilling that from 1471 to 1500, the Portuguese were not worried about going to Asia or going anywhere else. They were busy engaging with Africa. This was the center of the action. In fact, in the literature of that day, Portugal called West Africa the New World. Yeah, and and you know, I noticed in in your book that you can see evidence of this in terms of Portugal's treasury is stabilized sort of after the Hundred Year War. They are minting a lot of gold coins with African gold. So really this starts with a gold rush based on seeing Mansa Musa or hearing about Mansa Musa nearly 100 years before, 150 years before actually striking gold or su- discovering gold there. You, you talked about Portugal being a really a new kingdom or new country. Talk to me a bit about Europe standing in the world at that point, in the, in, in the world meaning relative to the Arab world or China or India, sort of, what was Europe like at that point? So we are uh, bathing, we are sort of submersed in a version of history that involves something that is best kind of described to begin with using a fancy word, a political sort of historical or political term called teleology. And teleology means the way things are now is the way they were destined to be because you know, everything was like that a long time ago or, or was pushing us in a given direction toward a given outcome a long time ago. History is almost never, in fact, like that. Uh, and the best, the best way of helping your reader, your, I keep saying readers because I write books, helping your listeners understand this is by answering your question about Europe in that age. Europe was an unremarkable part of the world. It was not terribly distinguished in any particular way in the Middle Ages compared to other great centers of civilization. Uh, let me start with Africa. Africa had a number of kingdoms in the Middle Ages that were as extensive, meaning as big geographically as, as, as most European kingdoms, and were as capable in material terms and in military terms as European kingdoms. What Africans lacked in that era was large-masted, ocean-going vessels that had sails. Okay? Um, but in almost every other regard, the greatest kingdoms of Africa of that era could stand their own with the greatest kingdoms of Europe in that era. Okay, next thing. So who who were the true leaders of world civilization in terms of going by the criteria of wealth and power? Uh, and for um, that's a hard question to answer in an absolute sense, but I think there's a pretty strong consensus among historians and economic historians that for a long string of centuries, the two great, well, let's mention three, the three great centers in the old world, so to speak, meaning this side of the Atlantic Ocean, were India, or what became the kingdoms that became India, China, and the Muslim world in the Middle East. That these are the places that concentrated the greatest amount of learning, the greatest, the highest technology, the largest kind of um, expanse in terms of uh, political governance, the strongest militaries, the biggest libraries. Etc. Etc. And so Europe, until the modern age, 
I don't wish to exaggerate this. You're, it's not that Europe was nothing, that Europeans were savages or barbarians or something like that compared to other people, but it was not a particularly distinguished part of the world in terms of these sorts of measurements as these other places, uh, South Asia, East Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, one really quick example is that in the ninth century, it was very well understood in the Arab world where mathematics were, were quite highly developed, that the world was round. And the Arab mathematicians and scientists of this era had already a very a pretty accurate sense, not just of how round the world was, but of the exact size of the world. Now, the Europe, I mentioned the Portuguese exploration ventures in the 15th century trying to find the gold in Africa and having to overcome superstitions. The Western, Western Europeans didn't know this. They believed that still that the world was flat. We all learned that in school, right? Columbus is one right. of the people who supposedly helped us all discover that the world wasn't flat. Well, this was known in other parts of the world a long centuries prior to this. And in fact, because Mali was part of the Islamic world, it was known in Mali too. The Malians of Mansa Musa's time and before Mansa Musa's time were reading the texts that came out of the Muslim world in the Middle East. And so, yeah, um, there's no real argument to be made no argument that, that withstands careful scrutiny that Europe has been a world leader for a very long time. And let me, I'm sorry to go on this long, but no, just please. to buckle this thought, um, one of the most important arguments of my book, in fact, probably the central argument of my book, is that it is Africa and the appropriation of Africa's resources and of Africa's labor that actually launched Europe, that placed Europe on the trajectory that allowed it to surpass these other parts of the world in wealth and power. And that without Africa, not only would Europe not have become a world leader, but there would never have been a West. What do I mean by West? When I say West, this is a term that gets thrown around a lot in conversation, yep. but never really gets carefully, seldom gets carefully examined or deconstructed. The West, in my usage, to be very clear, means a condominium or a, a community between Western Europe and North America, and especially Anglophone North America. And if it is Africans and the labor of Africans that made the West possible, and I'm just going to leave you a small datum or piece of data to prove this, up until the year 1820, which is by historical standards, a blink of an eye, right, ago, yep. four times as many people were brought across the Atlantic from Africa than from Europe. That means up until 1820, it was Africans who were doing the work of creating the West, clearing the lands, digging the canals, farming, harvesting, uh, growing sugar and distilling things. This was the labor, all of the hard work. I don't mean to confine Africans to physical labor. We can get into intellectual stuff later. But all of the hard work was done by Africans. Uh, and so this rugged individualism story that you talked about at the very outset yeah. is, is oh, yeah. one of the grossest myths of all. Uh, it yeah. was Africans that made the creation of the West possible. There's, it's, there's no version of history that is plausible that could convince me that Europeans would have been able in the t along the time frame uh, that we're talking about to have established a condominium, a, a, a wealthy sphere that encompassed North America and attached it to Europe 
without the millions of people brought from Africa that made that possible. Now you you laid that out really well, and it's it's really detailed in the in the book. And and for our listeners, we will be doing a deep dive on Mali because I, I will tell you this, and I'll, I'll keep it moving and make sure we stay with this book. Is that Mansa Musa, by my reading, is not even the most accomplished Mansa of Mali. I mean, there's Sujata who was a, the founder and has his own constitution and bill of rights. And, and then there's Abu Kari, who's a, his own explorer. So, I mean, it's a very sophisticated kingdom and we will talk about that. But Howard, I do want to to pause for a minute and go back to Elmina, which is where the Portuguese discovered gold. And I believe that's also the, the Elmina castle, is that right? right. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are two things that I've had the the opportunity to to go to the continent a couple of times, but I haven't been to West Africa. I've been to South Africa and to Ethiopia. And before COVID, we were going to Ghana, but we we will get there. One of the places that people go, especially African Americans, go and talk about going to the Elmina Castle and other castles and the Door of No Return and sort of that's where uh, those people who were enslaved ported or left the continent and went to the new world. But it wasn't built for as a slave sort of holding facility, for lack of a better term. It's really about really more of a, a trading post for gold initially. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So in the terminology, the curious terminology of, of this topic, the slave trading centers that the Europeans built by the dozens along the West African coast, and especially in present-day Ghana, have come to be called castles. Uh, there's something slightly perverse about this. Um, yeah. But I think the, the term castle derives mostly from their their giant size and the fact that they, are, they tend to be whitewashed, meaning they're white in color and they stand out brilliantly along the coast. And they're, you know, they, they loom, and so therefore castles. Anyway. Elmina is by far the most, historically speaking, the most important of these because it is the place where, as I argue, the modern age is launched from. The Portuguese finally discover gold in, in modern-day Ghana, and this is this happens at Elmina, and the Portuguese negotiate the right to construct a fort there, and 10 years after the discovery of gold, the fort is built quickly, uh, and it survives today and uh, is worthy of all the attention I've given it and anyone who's listening who wishes to visit it, any attention you care to give it. But the story of Elmina is, even among Ghanaians, is generally poorly understood. Uh, It is thought of as predominantly as a place, as a sort of landmark of the slave trade, but Elmina was created for gold. And gold sets off the modern age, as I said. It makes Portugal a viable kingdom. It gives twenty five for the next few decades. Twenty five percent of all Portugal's revenue came from trade with Elmina in gold, and the Spanish, who wished from the very beginning to defeat the Portuguese and to reabsorb them into their domain, learned very quickly of the the wealth that the poor Portuguese were suddenly sourcing in West Africa, and plotted to take it over. Spain is you know almost ten times bigger than Portugal population wise in this era and much wealthier. And so the, the Spanish became determined to, to, to try to seize 
uh, uh, control of this trade in gold. And so they start, start sending ships themselves down the coast of West Africa and hoping to discover new sources of gold, but also poaching on the Portuguese trade in this era. And the Portuguese, knowing how much their survival depended on this, said, we better figure out a way to deploy a navy off the coast of West Africa. And the Portuguese, even though they were much poorer than the Spanish, because this was a matter of their sheer survival, they were very clever and deliberate about all of this. And so they knew that one day or another, the Spanish are going to come for them. And the Spanish indeed send a fleet to try to take over Elmina. And the Portuguese lay, had intelligence about this and lay in ambush and defeated the Spanish fleet in one of the most important and yet unknown military confrontations of this era. Nobody reads about this in any sort of mainstream history book. Um, the Portuguese win this battle. And after this battle, having sunk a bunch of Spanish ships, the Portuguese say, hey, we better build a fort here. And because this is the only way we can secure this trade. And so that is the origin, not slavery, of the fort at Elmina. The slave trade begins to take off in fairly large numbers in Africa. So 1471 is the discovery of Elmina. 1482 is the construction of the fort at Elmina. The slave trade really begins in large quantity sometime in the next century. There's already slaving taking place, but it, the volume picks up in the next century. But Ghana itself, that coastal area of West Africa, doesn't become an a truly important center of slave trading until the mid-1600s to the early 1700s. And that is because there were so much other kinds of wealth to be had there. The, you know, the Portuguese and subsequently the Dutch and even the English and others. Why are we going to bother with, why, why should we focus on slavery, even if slavery is booming in other places, when there's so much commerce to be had in gold? So the history of Elmina really needs to be rewritten. It needs to be re-understood. doesn't mean to say that Elmina was not an important source in the trade in human beings that we sort of sanitize by calling it the slave trade, right? But that's not how it began. And the beginning in gold is supremely important to understanding our history. It's under, important to understanding European history too, by the way. This created not just a survivability for Portugal, but this was the first instance of it, rich new circuits of trade among Europeans within Europe. The Portuguese were being poor. They didn't have many goods that the West Africans wanted. And so they had to come up with things to sell to the people of Ghana in order to get them to sell gold to them. And so the Portuguese begin trading with Germans and with Dutch and other people in Northern Europe uh, using whatever bits of gold they could get their hands on to get metalware and textiles from Northern Europe that the Ghanaians and other Africans desired. And these were the first circuits of economic integration in Europe between uh, Northern and Southern Europe. It was Africa that launched all of that. It was Africa that catalyzed that. Yeah, no. So in reading your book, it's clear that Africa and its resources were critical to the, the global supply chain at that time. You did say that, though, the the slave trade picked up. What does sort of sugar have to do with the slave trade and it, and it picking up? Oh, sugar has everything to do with not just the slave trade, but with everything, with modernity. Sugar is what made the modern world. And I make a sustained argument in that direction in my book. 1471, the Portuguese discover gold in great quantities in Ghana. Uh, they 
imagine that if if this one spot on the coast could be this rich in gold, then there must be Africa must be. So we learn about the fabulous wealth of Asia and the spices and the silks and things like that. The Portuguese in this era are thinking all of Africa must be like this, and so they start sending ships up and down the coast of Africa, thinking that they would repeat this success with gold in Ghana and discover precious metals in great quantities in other places, right? They don't begin quickly to find that. They do eventually, in various places, find important, nothing comparable to Ghana, but important sources of mineral wealth. But what they do find is in just a few years after the discovery of Elmina, they stumble upon a couple of uninhabited islands off of Central Africa. The most important one is called Sao Tome. And Sao Tome is right on the equator, a mountainous, rain-fed, very their soil, very rich place that was uninhabited. Nobody lived there when the Portuguese showed up. And right around that same time, farther far to the north in the Atlantic, in places like Madeira and in the Canary Islands, the Portuguese had begun to experiment in the growth of sugarcane and the production of refined sugar. In that era, sugar was a rare luxury good in Europe, extremely expensive. Only the richest people could afford to use refined sugar. And so the Portuguese, some unknown Portuguese person had the idea, let's try to plant this crop here in Sao Tome. And so they brought sugarcane to Sao Tome and in this equatorial environment in the mountains with incredible volcanic soil and, and abundant rains, sugar just takes off. What we have seen everywhere in history where sugar sugar originates in the East, everywhere where sugar has been grown in history, coerced labor or slavery has been the means for growing it. And that's because sugar is a brutal crop to plant and harvest. It is extremely, extremely laborious and dangerous. It cuts you up. And so the Portuguese say, let's start capturing people or trading for people on the African mainland and put them, which was not far away from Sao Tome, and put them to work growing this sugar. And so it is in Sao Tome where I think the most important innovation, it's a horrible innovation, but innovation is the right word, meaning an invention of an economic model. The most important innovation in all of modern history prior to industrialization takes place. And that innovation is the thing that we call the plantation. Plantation is a prettified term for what I'm talking about. We say plantation in America. We think of these, you know, gone with the wind style estates with their Roman pillars and, you know, their gentrified elites and things like that, right? A plantation was nothing less than an industrial prison labor camp where you take captive people you place them under armed guard, you put them to brutal regimented work at the lash, and you discipline them mercilessly and keep them on a, a bare survival diet. So that's what the plantation was. And this model comes into its final shape in Sao Tome, along with an institution called chattel slavery. Chattel slavery means the permanent subjugation of generational slavery on a captive uh, population. Uh, and so this means if I get captured uh, and I'm a man or a woman then, and I happen to reproduce and have children, those children are automatically also slaves. And the children of those children are automatically also slaves, on and on and on, right? Uh, and so chattel slavery takes form in Sao Tome. It is, a, it is done in a way that is 
bound up in African identity. Europeans identify Africans as the natural subjects of chattel slavery. And this institution, this innovation of plantation or prison labor slavery that is elaborated and perfected in Sao Tome very quickly transits across the Atlantic to Brazil, which the Portuguese almost immediately thereafter discover and takes hold in Brazil and produces extraordinary wealth for the Portuguese. And then it's copied by other Europeans, the Spanish in Mexico, the English in the Caribbean, subsequently the French in the Caribbean, they all employ this model. And let me give you just a quick idea of how much wealth was derived from this. So we all, uh, the most famous stories of the early modern age of the wealth that came from the New World are usually about Spain, that the Spanish, they conquered these native kingdoms in places like Bolivia, uh, where Potosi is, and they took enormous amounts of silver from South America or gold from other places, and they shipped it and spent these great ships that the Spanish called galleons across the Atlantic or to China to trade with China. Right? These are the famous stories of wealth acquisition in the early modern age. It was sugar that produced through chattel slavery and through this glorified thing called plantations, which produced by far the most wealth for Europe, by far, immeasurably more. And so the best example that I can think of to sort of make this come to life in the minds of your listeners is Barbados. Barbados is a little tiny island that the English took over in 1630. The English copied the Portuguese methods and set up plantations there with chattel slavery to grow sugar. And in the space of three or four or five decades, the British, in the beginning they were called the English, but let's call them the British, derived more wealth from sugar production using Africans than all of the wealth that the Spanish got from gold and silver. And Barbados is one-third the size of the city of Los Angeles. And so hundreds of thousands of Africans brought to this little tiny parcel of land in the Caribbean, put to work in prison labor camps at the lash, produced that much wealth for England, which was at its very beginnings as an imperial power. Yeah. Now, and, and I think that's really important just to, I just want to keep bringing the listeners first off, get the book. That's number one, but just back to that, the England that we see now with the premier league and the museum and, uh, and, uh, Heathrow and all of that is not the England of the, uh, 17th century. I do want to, to park though in Barbados for a minute there because there, there are things that come out of Barbados capitalization, systems of capitalization, banking, charters for companies. So there's a lot of innovation that happens in Barbados. And I want to talk about some of those things, but there's one that I want to, if you could talk a little bit about what were the black codes or the black codes in in Barbados? So the black codes, which were essentially invented in Barbados and then spread throughout um, the rest of the the so-called New World, uh, was a legal system that codified the separate legal basis for life among black people in contrast to white people. In other words, white people enjoyed all of the normal rights that you would associate with the period of the Enlightenment in Europe and you know the emergence of a system that we call uh, the rule of law, right? Uh, and the Black Codes was a separate and parallel system of law that was meant to regiment and to to relegate people of African ancestry to an inferior status. 
basically criminalizing blackness, that you, the only legal way to be black, with a few exceptions, was to be owned by somebody else. Uh, and that this was your station, this was your normal station in life. Uh, and that anytime you were not at work on a plantation under the ownership of a white person, uh, you had to prove that there was a valid reason for you not being un- in that status. In other words, if you're black, just walking around is criminal. Uh, if you're black, uh, you can be accused of loitering just because you're not obviously working in a productive way. Black codes regimented African life in uh, in a station of, of subjugation and inferiority and exploitation in the most systematic way you can imagine and essentially made it legal, deprived people of African ancestry of all rights and made it legal for white people to do whatever they wished to do to black people. Uh, in other words, blacks were deprived of rights to the extent that it wasn't even illegal to kill a black person. You know, there's no almost no circumstance under which a white person could be punished for doing something to a black person because that was the degree of separation in the notions of the rights that pertain to whiteness versus the whites that pertain to blackness. And so the first codification of this takes place in, 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 in Barbados in the mid-17th century and then spreads to places like South Carolina and into the French Caribbean and, and various other places. It eventually takes hold in the entire United States South. So while we're there, to, to that point about Barbados and the Black Codes, uh, there are a couple of things I want to talk about. So Barbados at that time size uh, is an English colony, and as is Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, et cetera. What's the most valuable? What's in terms of size and economic output? The the colonies that become the U, that make up the U.S. the thirteen colonies or Barbados? So th- that's a great question, uh, and I can tell how closely you read the book by this question. Um, and so I'm <laughs> smiling here. You all listening can't hear it, but I'm smiling. Um, uh-huh. You know, th- I don't want to give the wrong idea, right? Every country, every people find some way to mythologize their past. This is part of human nature, right? But Americans don't have an idea very often of how systematic this is. And so we have a very glorified view of our beginnings in this country, and we celebrate the positive things, and the majority culture, the majority identity groups in this country are kind of particularly proud of of this most noble and kind of... um, meritorious aspects of this. You know, we have a story about liberty and about democracy and about freedom and about rights and things like that, right? And all of that stuff's debatable. In a place where liberty was not enjoyed by all and democracy wasn't certainly enjoyed by all and rights were not enjoyed by all. And we're just emerging in the last 50 years or so where we can begin to say those things, right? But where I want to, so what I'm inching toward here is part of our myth is in the exaggeration that we have of our own role in the past of the British Empire. In other words, because we take the age of our so-called founding fathers so to be so important, we imagine that it was enormously important to, to Britain and to the rest of the world at the time. In fact, the Caribbean was far more important, economically speaking, to Britain or to France for that matter than was the mainland uh, parts of North America that became the United States and Canada, et cetera. 
right? Far, far more. And the very economic survival of the 13 colonies that became the sort of embryo of the United States was bound up in trade uh, with the slave produce, the sugar producing islands of the Caribbean. So you mentioned Barbados. Barbados first, Jamaica secondly, and probably even more importantly, were the were these sort places of enormous wealth, where the average per capita income of a white person in a place like Jamaica, I don't remember, I, I, I mentioned this number in my book, I don't have it in the top of my head, something like 30 times more than the per capita average wealth of a white person in North America in this era. That's how much prosperous, how much more prosperous these sugar islands were than mainland North America because of Africans, because of the exploitation of Africans, because of the prison labor system of chattel slavery. And the North American colonies that become the United States essentially survive by providing comestibles and basically supplies, lumber, livestock, hardware, furniture, things like this to places in the Caribbean where the land was so valuable because of the profits to be made in slave-grown sugar that it didn't make economic sense to use the land for anything, not even one square inch of land. Didn't right. make sense to have a little garden where you're going to grow, you know, something to eat, right? Everything was put to use to grow sugar. Sugar was, you know, it was like Silicon Valley on steroids in terms of the profit margins, right? And so it was trade with those islands that kept the North American mainland economies going in this era. And this is cut out completely from our history. We just imagine you have these really clever fellows who are sitting there thinking about high ideals and things like that, and that, you know, sometimes slavery entered into their discussions in terms of slavery in, in their own midst in North America. Slavery was part of their very survival in other ways that don't ever get mentioned. And that is, there would have been no economic life had it not been for, for the, the, the sugar islands of the Caribbean. Yeah. You know, there, there's a couple of things that I, I am one of these people that I tend to visit slave ports and, and plantations or what have you. I just want to, to know. But on a trip to Mount Vernon, I was stunned. And they were talking about how George Washington, during different seasons, when there were certain type of fish that were abundant, that would stop everything in terms of tobacco or what have you on the plantation there and turn to fishing to go to the Caribbean. And it and it, it was one of those things that it wasn't that I was doubting what I was hearing, but it just didn't make any sense because in my mind, I'm thinking the, the, the first president of the United States, I'm thinking Virginia and all of those things that it, it, it just really twisted me up. So your book straightened that out for me. But then there's also, as we know about codification of slavery in the United States, the migration of planters and enslaved Africans to the Carolinas until Charleston, how that affects the politics and so many other things that we eventually experience here. There's one thing that I want to to ask you, though, and, and you don't spend a lot of time on this kind of thing in the book, but there was one part where it was emotional for me. There's two. I will get to them both. Dunging and dung holes. Um, can you talk just a little bit about that? Because I think that it, it, in, in where I'm going with this and in, in, in is there's a, a psychological dehumanization along with the physical that, that happens and, and is moved on. 
Sure. So your listeners might not know what we're talking about when we say dunging. Um, yes. Dung means, you know, uh, excrement, uh, human waste, right? Uh, and to grow sugar requires a few things. It requires rich soil to begin with. It requires tropical temperatures or just barely subtropical temperatures. It requires abundant seasonal rains. And because sugar exhausts the soil very rapidly, it requires heavy fertilization. And fertilization until the 20th century was always involved uh, natural fertilization. There were no chemical fertilizers available. And so this uh, was uh, folk, the, the focus of fertilization was collecting, marshalling, and distributing waste of all kinds into the fields. And this was animal waste and human waste. Uh, and so it was given to Africans to perform these tasks. Uh, and this was one of the most, one of the least talked about and one of the most brutal and dehumanizing forms of exploitation of enslaved people in this period. And I saw, I, I, as you mentioned, I described this process in Barbados, where the uh, Sao Tome model of the prison labor camp growing sugar for great profit takes hold uh, beginning in the 1630s. And for whatever reason, the white people who got rich in Barbados in this era tended to employ, uh, disproportionately employ women, uh, African women, in the dunging or the distribution of dung or excrement into the fields. And so people had to dig uh, small pits alongside the stalks of uh, the young sugar shoots and then fill these pits with excrement. And to get the excrement to the field, the women had to carry vast vats filled to the brim with animal and human excrement on their heads. And the excrement, of course, as you're walking to the field over the rough land is sloshing out of the barrel or the vat all onto you, which is disgusting enough, right, in any normal sense, but is also very often lethal. You're being exposed to pathogens of all kinds along yep. the way uh, and therefore bound to sooner or later uh, succumb to some kind of infectious disease. The lifespan of the captives that we call slaves in this kind of employment in the Caribbean in this era was estimated from the moment of arrival from Africa until their death to be about five to seven years. Uh, and so there are a variety of reasons for that brief lifespan, but the, the, the employment or the abuse of people in the pursuit of dunging or fertilization of the fields doesn't get talked about very much, but was a really, really important reason for the high mortality rates. Yeah. And those that those high mortality rates really drove really large numbers of of humans being traded from Africa to the Caribbean and then intra-Caribbean trading and then the Caribbean to the United States. And I mean, it's just a lot of trading of people. I do want to park for a minute just on on that, because there is a number of institutions that you talk about that that in the book. I mean, there's the Royal African Company, the Guinea Company. And so you can see the intent and focus on African bodies and then the African kingdoms and actually being sophisticated, uh, really. So this is not a, a situation where the Europeans are coming in and, and really war taking. There's a lot of diplomacy and statecraft and those kinds of things going on. There were two kingdoms that you talked about in Africa and 
and, and who am I to judge in 2022? But I was so happy with the kingdom of Benin <laughs> that they wanted to stop the trade. And then I was much like the dunging on your chapter or the, the, the passages where you go through about the kingdom of Congo, I was really disheartened because my reading of, of your book is that Congo and Portugal are equals. They both have established succession. They have uh, military and a whole lot of other things, but it appeared that their relationship was actually really close. And even with the some of the the Congo um, nobles or or what have you, actually going to to university to study in Lisbon, and I think my my judgment was that. Of all the groups that could have seen what was going on, I was just like, oh, why, did, why didn't they see what happened there? But and, and now I'm on a rant. But I do want to, to go to a couple of things. There's a tremendous Mark, amount. Mark let, Mark, let me pause you just to very quickly offer a, a condensed answer to that question. One of the reasons why Africans, not just in Congo, but in across the continent, didn't yep. come to terms with what was going on more quickly is because of the different nature of slavery as an institution in Africa versus chattel slavery. Slavery has existed in every human society at some point or another in history. Slavery is not unique to Europe or, or to Africans or to Asia, anybody. It's human. It's always happened, right? But what was different and what the Africans could not imagine was chattel slavery. The Africans didn't send people to the New World to see. They had no opportunity to see what was happening in the New World and to what kind of uses their people were being put in the New World under the lash in these prison labor camps and to come back and to report to Africa and thereby to help build a common sense among Africans across the continent. Hey, we better somehow come together around this thing because this is a genocidal pursuit that's trying to bestialize us and turn us into into chattel, right? They didn't know that. What Africans knew was a very different form of slavery under which, and this isn't to make it sound like I would have liked to be a slave myself under any circumstances. I don't think anybody would, right? But in the normal institution of African slavery, like in many, many other parts of the world across history, slaves were for the most part peoples who had been, uh, were conquered in war between neighboring societies and captured. And the people who were captured, uh, the males especially, were often put to work in high sort of intensity labor kind of roles. And the women were often sort of um, enrolled in reproduction. In other words, they became uh, the secondary wives or concubines of the, of the victors. And I'm not trying to prettify that. But yep. the point I'm trying to make is that in almost all of these forms of traditional slavery that existed in humanity prior to chattel, there was no taint that crossed generations about having been an, a slave ancestor. The, this was just a normal thing. And so the woman who was the concubine, her child very often, their, African history has countless examples where the children of people under histories like this became chiefs, uh, became kings, or became, in the case of what we're calling Mali, became actually the emperor, Right. So there was no taint. There was no racial thing. It was not an identity question. So you're a slave, meaning you're inferior, and your your progeny is inferior, and this is going to follow you down through time. You're marked as if you were branded like an animal, right? And so when the Africans are become wrapped up in this slave trade with Europe, they have a totally 
they've got a totally different idea of what's going on. It was unimaginable to them what kind of picture existed on the other side of the Atlantic, what sorts of purposes these people were being put to, and what this would eventually mean for Africans more broadly. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and thank you for that. So we talked about Africa as the, the place and the target and the African gold, and then the importance of African labor. What does African resilience and the form of African resilience, African rebellion, African agency in the form of Haiti have to do with the modern world? Well, first of all, let me say that African resilience is an ongoing project. And the most important thread of African resilience is for all people of African ancestry, wherever they may find themselves, meaning in America or in the Caribbean or in Latin America or in Africa or in Europe or even further afield, to understand what we share together and how what we have in common is more important than the petty little things that in chauvinistic terms may suggest differences between us. And this is a hard struggle. This is this is a deep thing. And it's a deep thing because in our subjugation into slavery and in our dispersal, the Europeans went to very great lengths to balkanize us and to separate us and to inculcate us with ideas that have to do with denial of our African identity or with self-hatred or running away from, from our origins on the African continent or in thinking that being of French ancestry or of English ancestry or of Portuguese ancestry is more important than being of African ancestry. This is a battle that's still taking place. And we got a lot of work to do, Mark. We got a lot of work. Americans, you know, I'm American, so I'm not speaking from a different place. I'm speaking from within the American experience. Americans somehow imagine that slavery is mostly an American story. And that, yeah. you know, it's, you know, we're different from other people. Like, what if we don't need to talk about all that other stuff? Yes, we do. First yeah. of all, slavery is vitally important to American history for sure. But American slavery was a relatively small piece of a much bigger thing. And Americans are in, we happen to be in a position of great power and wealth in the world today. And the Whatever 10, 12% of this population that is of African ancestry in this country has to understand that it has a responsibility to itself to come to find ways to inform itself about blackness elsewhere and to embrace blackness universally and not just to think of ourselves as American, to make it our duty to connect with blackness and with the history of blackness in other places. Amen. Amen and amen on that. And and to that end, I think, it, you know, back to to Haiti, one of the places that we could take pride in or just started even there's two things with Haiti. One, it's the Haitian Revolution is a world event. And what does the Haitian Revolution do in terms of the slave trade and the United States as we know it now? I'm sorry, I got carried away in that last answer, and I. No, you're good. No, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, no, that carried away was perfect. No, 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 no. Don't apologize for that one. <laughs> I lost the Haiti piece. Um, yeah, no, we're it, good, and, and, and it's really important. Like, there's yep. not a lot of things more important than this. Okay, so let me break it down for you. In 1791, the African peoples who had been enslaved on the island of Hispaniola rose up, and 
under the leadership eventually of a man named Toussaint Louverture, they conquered the three greatest empires of early modern era. This is an incredible thing. I call them Africans because all this happens, although this happens in Hispaniola, which is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, these people had been brought from different places in Africa, and none of them were surviving more than five or seven years on Haitian soil. And therefore, they were all speaking their different languages and had their different identities. The white people had gone to great extents to prevent them from coming together by mixing them up this way. And despite that, they defeated the three greatest empires on earth, Spain, Britain, and France. Britain and France each sent the largest naval fleets up until that point in time in history to try to put down the revolt of the enslaved people in Hispaniola and the black people from Africa won. And this Napoleon had invested so heavily in trying to retain control of of, of, of Haiti because Haiti was the richest colony in the history of the world. You guys don't need to believe me. Look this stuff up. No place had ever been so profitable ever in human history for a colonizer than Haiti. And so Napoleon was hell-bent on retaining control of this place. And he invested everything he could, and he was defeated. And when he was defeated, he was near pushed toward bankruptcy. And so in panic, Napoleon decides he better sell all of France's holdings on the continental uh, in continental North America. And so he sells what become 15 American states, what we know of as the Louisiana Purchase, basically the middle part of the United States, right, uh, with the Mississippi Valley as its center. Two things happen. Uh, he sells this to Thomas Jefferson's administration for $15 million, all or part of 15 states. This is what makes the first inklings of the United States as a continental power become possible, as opposed to just a coastal power. Suddenly, the United States is a continental power. Two things happen. First thing that happens is, because of the victory of Africans in Haiti, white people in the Old South, in the United States, are panicked. In South Carolina and Georgia and Virginia and places like this, they say, oh no, if the Africans can do this to Spain, Britain, and France, Maybe they'll rise up here too, and we'll all get slaughtered, or the blacks will take over. And so they begin a plan under the Thomas Jefferson administration and that of his successors to thin out the African population in the Old South by sending Africans westward into these new territories, the the Louisiana Purchase. And they become concentrated in the Mississippi Valley, and they are put to work growing cotton. And cotton beginning from almost nothing in the 1790s, becomes, in the space of two decades, less than two decades, the most important economic export of the United States by far. Cotton is the most important economic product by far of the United States in this period, and would be all the way to the Civil War. So for, for two-thirds of the, of, the, of the 19th century, Cotton grown by slaves is the engine of American growth and of American wealth. And that all happened as a result of the victory of slaves in Haiti who freed themselves and created a republic that banished slavery and guaranteed equality for all human beings, whatever their race on that island. This happens the first time in humanity on Haiti, and then it transforms utterly the direction and the dimensions of the United States, and it creates the, the, the growth uh, via cotton 
in the economy of the United States that in a very short period of time makes the United States or puts the United States on the path of becoming the richest country in the world. All of this stems from Haitian history. Yeah. And and I think for the the United States really catches a luck of timing of when cotton takes off because the United States so unlike Barbados is is or even Brazil, given all of you know the resources and profits or sharing a lot of profits with Portugal and Barbados with England, when cotton takes off, the United States is a country. This is after the revolution. So cotton is Cotton is the engine. Cotton is the internet. I mean, there's no, there's no railroads. There's no Ford factories or any of that. I mean, you can follow the 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 building of cotton, the capitalization, the banks, the Wall Street, insurance, everything is 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 cotton. So it, it can't be underestimated in in terms of how important cotton is. Now, there's there's two things as we 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 sort of be, get, come to a close, and this has been very good. As someone who is a son of the Great Migration, who went to college in Jackson, Mississippi, I cannot leave without talking about two people uh, or two two a person and a family within that 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 text, or maybe just the one. There's the Stovall. You mentioned the Stovall family who bought land in Clarksdale in 1836. So they're clearly plantation owners, slavers doing cotton in the Delta, which I know really well. What happened with that family's wealth? Uh, The Stovall family, uh, because of the Civil War, gets out of cotton production uh, eventually and uses its accumulated resources to build a business empire in the North uh, based in in, uh, Illinois. And I don't remember the exact details of the names of the characters involved, but in the very recent past, we're talking about billionaires, basically. That, that yeah. This becomes the seed of, 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 of immense wealth. Um, you know, a lot of the disparity in wealth between African-Americans and other Americans we speak of as being uh, the product of generational wealth transfer, right? Yeah. And so the generational wealth transfer advantage that white people have very often in this country comes from many things, right? Um, housing and the whole suburbanization thing in the 50s and the GI Bill, we talk about all of these things having given white people historic um, generational advantages. But the original one was slavery or enslavement, right? People whose family lines built up wealth through slavery had tremendous advantages going forward. And so the the Stovalls are are a great example of this. What is brown land and what does brown land have to do with... um starting this book? Because I don't think this is a book like you say, well, I'm going to write this and then three years I'll be done and here it is. Let's start with Brownland. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so Brownland is a property that is in my owned by my family, fairly modest in size, but has been transmitted down generations from, the, from Thomas Jefferson's time and via a story very similar to Thomas Jefferson. So one of the things we know most famously, although it took establishment historians a long time to accept this, is that Thomas Jefferson fathered a family via a woman that he owned named Sally Hemings. And so a contemporary of Thomas Jefferson and a political ally of Thomas Jefferson, who was an early governor of Virginia, was named James Barber. And this person, James Barber, had a child by a woman back in that era 
uh, who he owned, who is my ancestor. And that is my grandmother's grandmother. So you can count the generations. And I can't get into all the complexity here, but uh, James Barber took a liking to certain, this is a common story in slavery, took a liking to certain of his slaves uh, and made promises to a couple of my ancestors that they would be allowed, first of all, he allowed them to get um, some degree of education, formally speaking, and then offered them the prospect through his estate of having some small landholding after his death. Barber's white children then cheated these ancestors out of once he was gone, right, he couldn't really do much to enforce it. He's, you know, from the grave. And so they, through resentment, cheated my ancestors out of what was supposed to be their inheritance and grace to their education. They were able to uh, set themselves up in very small businesses as a blacksmith, for example, and as a shoemaker to um, cobble together their savings and to buy up small pieces of land in the original area that they were supposed to have inherited land from. That's what brown land comes from. They eventually constituted a holding of about 100 acres of land. 100 acres haven't come down to my generation, but a number of acres have. And so this story, as your your listeners hopefully can imagine, was a very powerful element in my family's identity and discussion, conversation throughout my life. We spent summers. I grew up in Washington, D.C., in my uh, sort of first half of my childhood, and we would spend our summers on brown land, on this land. So this lore about where we came from and what struggle means and what sacrifice means and what holding on to what belongs to you means and what not allowing yourself to be cheated means and being proud of who you are means, all of these things come down to us, my generation, in part through this very powerful origin story uh, in brown land and through, through this so-called miscegenation thing uh, involving James Barber. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And as we come to a close, there's uh, two questions that we ask. There's one question that we ask everyone and we end on something light because the parlay in all blue, parlay being a conversation and um, blue, all blues, blues derived music, blues people. A lot of the blues people stories are, are heavy. So we'd like to end on something light. But before we get to the light, what does it mean to live well? First of all, to live well means different things to everybody, to each of sure. us. And I don't want to impose my definition on other people. But to live well to me means to try to understand life and to understand the world and to try to embrace complexity and to try to resist accepting simple explanations for complicated things and to distrust conventional wisdoms and a kind of common, easily transmittable narratives that don't have much depth or much richness to them. And to take it as a responsibility to do my own work, my own labor in terms of inspecting the past and complicating the past and to asking deep questions and to pursuing answers to those questions and to sharing these things with other people who have a similar mindset, but also trying to transmit one's understanding to other people's. And so that's part of how I became a journalist. That's part of why I became a professor. Uh, That's part of why, uh, for even more obvious reasons, why I enjoy so much writing books. And finally, why I love to have conversations like the one I'm having with you. 
Well, I appreciate that and in writing the book, and thank you for that. You you've got you got a couple of assists in writing the book. There was Albert Murray uh, as a jazz fan, and went Marcellus. Uh, you know, I try to read Albert Murray's books. Uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of reading for me to to get through one page, but I, I'll get there eventually. Bob Marley uh, showed up, who really showed up for me, especially again as someone who went to school in in, in Mississippi and someone who loves the blues. Muddy Waters showed up, and, and you revealed that you are um, a, a blues fan. If you were to, if someone were to say, Howard, I want to get into the blues, what recordings or what musicians would you point them to? So I'm going to, I put together a little list here. And All right. uh, actually, it's not, it's not a little list, it's a big list, but I'm going to awesome. offer you some pickings from the list. Um, awesome. Uh, but uh, uh, just on Muddy Waters before I do so, uh, because I go into Muddy Waters history and it, he, he grew up on the Stovall Plantation in Mississippi. You mentioned the Stovalls, right? Muddy Waters has a record called the Plantation Recordings, which were before he became a, a professional musician, which were recorded in the 1940s. And I strongly recommend your listeners go listen to those. They're all acoustic and very raw in terms of, you know, mm. traditional and approach to his style of Delta blues. Um, then if you skip a few of, uh, a few years forward to his transition to Chicago, where he, he then moved, uh, his earlier, his earliest recordings in Chicago are all fantastic, but let me just, just drop a few names on you. So uh, Magic Sam, uh, West Side Soul is, a, is an album that I, I just love. I Am the Blues by Willie Dixon. Uh, mm. Hoodoo Man Blues by Junior Wells and Buddy Guy. Uh, Fathers and Sons by Muddy Waters. Moaning in the Midnight. I'm sorry, Moaning in the Moonlight by Howling Wolf. Dance with Freddie King by Freddie King. Uh, oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Taj Mahal, who is a contemporary, he's still doing it is amazing. Taz Mahal has an album, one of his favorite, my favorite albums of his is called The Natural Blues. And he spells natural. He spells it N-A-T-C-H apostrophe L blues. Uh, John Lee Hooker, It Serves You Right to Suffer. Uh, oh, Elmore yeah. James, Blues After Hours. Mississippi Fred McDowell, I Do Not Play No Rock and Roll. Uh, let me see. Sonny Boy Williams, Down and Out Blues. Little Walter, Confessing the Blues. Albert King, King of the Blues Guitar. Uh, yes. Another Muddy Waters, Can't Get No Grinding. T-Bone Walker, T-Bone Blues, Howlin' Wolf's album, Howlin' Wolf. Ice Picking by Albert Collins. I think I'll stop there. You guys get the idea. Listen, you, you get the idea, and, and, and I, I've heard and listened to us up, some of those, definitely the Junior Wells albums and uh, Fathers and Sons, Muddy Waters, all really good. Listen, Howard, all the absolute best to you with this book. And when I say that this is a work and I, and I, and I don't mean this with any hyperbole and it's my opinion for me, there's warmth above the suns. And then there's also the half that's never been told and it's Edward Baptiste, uh, what have you. And I think that this book born in blackness is right in there in terms of providing a foundation for understanding how we got here and again, you know, it's not just history. It's a well-told story and it's comprehensive and it's really a portal to so many things. I'd never heard of Eric Williams or Julia Scott. There's so much or I'd never heard of Sal Tomei. And, and I'm someone that really is trying to know. And it, it really opened up a lot for me. Thank you for your time. All the best. And we appreciate you joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. This has been beautiful. 
Well, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it because we enjoyed it. Everyone else, we will see you again next week. Thanks for sticking with us. Bye. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.